You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to episode 11 of The End from the Beginning. And as always, we're going to read our two text verses, the foundation for the idea that I'm getting across. And I may reiterate this a dozen times during this series, but it's important to note. It is my belief that the first 20 or 21 chapters of the book of Genesis, and perhaps even more, but this is as far as I've studied, I believe they represent what will unfold in the last days. In other words, they are a mirror image of the last days. And I think you can see it very clearly in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we have a paradise. Now, according to E.W. Bullinger in his book, The Companion Bible, and he was a remarkable scholar, there are over 30 different parallels between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. I have found even more parallels between the book of Genesis and things that happen in what we would call the last days. Revelation is not the sum total of the last days prophetic events. There are things to be found in 1 Thessalonians and and, uh, 1 Corinthians. There are other chapters in the Bible that teach certain last day events. Daniel would be another good source. And so I believe that these things are mirrored in the book of Genesis. So in a way, we can tell generally what is about to come by looking at what Genesis lays down for us in the way it advanced into history. Only we're going backwards. And so let's look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, 10, New English Bible. I reveal the end from the beginning. From ancient times, I reveal what is to be. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. This is the King James, and it says, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Now, as we advance into our study, the next sequence, Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis 16 is what we will cover. Uh, this six, the this sequence uh, is actually a happening or happenings that come before what we studied the last time. Now, the last time we studied the post-flood season, we studied the table of nations, the rise of a king named Nimrod. We studied the Tower of Babel. I believe these things are happening. Right now, in our lifetime, I think we're seeing the push toward that one world and global government uh, for everything on earth to be the same. We're seeing a repudiation of the five different commandments that God gave to Noah. Uh, You can read those in the book of Genesis chapter 9 as he came off the ark. And you can see what happened, that the Tower of Babel did not prosper And I know it may seem very difficult to grasp, but this push toward the one world government, new world order, great reset, whatever you want to call it, will not succeed. Now, we may see some kind of resurrection of this later, but this one is not going to prosper in the way that those who push it want to see it prosper. It just isn't going to happen. So let's take a look at what God says to us about this period that we're reading about. And these are things that have already happened, and I think you'll be able to tell that as we get into them. Genesis 15.1, New King James Version. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. These three words that begin this chapter after these things indicate a separation of thought from the previous chapters. And so this is the beginning of another sequence. Now, I don't believe that you can take it chapter by chapter and reverse the first 20 or 21 chapters of Genesis to get a timeline for the end times. I think what we have to focus on instead is the various different sequences 
There was a flood sequence we read about in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8, all of that having to do with Noah's flood. We can see that mirrored in an event that will happen in the future. But this sequence, starting in Genesis chapter 15, has a remarkable tale of the Holocaust, and I think you'll be able to see it. Now, as we read Genesis chapter 15, we see starting in verse 2, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no seed, and one born in my house is my heir. Now, the biggest concern that he had was to have an heir. He wanted an heir, but he didn't just want this heir to be anyone, and it could have been an adopted uh, servant, but Abraham didn't want that. Abraham wanted his own biological seed, and this is what God said. God knew that's what he wanted, and listen to how God answered him. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir, this Eliezer of Damascus that you talked about. He's not the one. He will not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. In other words, you will father a child who will be your heir. Now he's concerned because he's about 85 years old and he does not yet have a biological son. His wife has been unable to bear children. She's 75, 76 at this time. She's not able to have children, and they're not getting any younger. So he's got some concerns. But the Lord stimulates his general belief, not specific belief, but general belief. And now the only thing that God is very specific about is he's telling Abraham, you will be the biological father of your heir, of your offspring. It'll be your son. God doesn't say a thing in the world about Sarah at this point in time. That doesn't mean she's on probation it means that God is waiting for a set time to manifest his plan. Now he takes Abram out and he brought him abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, tell the stars if you be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now Abraham couldn't go beyond what God had given him through the word. All faith comes first from God. The Bible says he's the author or the beginner and the finisher of our faith. He develops it. Your faith does not start off fully developed. God has to take you on a faith journey. In the beginning, you will develop more of a general faith. And what Abraham is receiving from God is this general idea. You're going to be a biological father. Now, I actually believed this years ago. I heard people say it. I think that's why I believed it, that Abraham believed God and confessed a son for 25 years. That's not true, and it didn't happen like that. He believed God's promise, but he didn't know who the son would be, and he didn't know who the mother would be, not until God appeared to him when he was 99 years old. Then and only then did God say, Sarah, or Sarai at the time was her name, God changed it. He said, Sarah will be the mother. Then he was able to confess what God had told him he would do. In general, he could say, I will have offspring. And that's the way God spoke to him. He can't go beyond God in his faith. This is one of the things I see a lot of people do, and that is this. They, they, they go beyond what God has really said. They think that they're having faith because they're doing something grand, but faith always has to have a basis. What is your basis? How can Abraham have a basis to believe that Sarai will be the mother of a son if God has never made that kind of promise? He has been very general up until this point. So Abraham believes as much as he is able to believe. Now, it is important to understand the difference between an heir and a seed. 
Now, an heir is not necessarily a biological child. Christ was the heir of Joseph, being the oldest child in the family. Even though Joseph was not his biological father, he was the adoptive son of Joseph, and therefore he was entitled to all the blessings of the firstborn. And in fact, Joseph would have been the king of Israel had it not been for a curse that was pronounced on the kingly line because of what they did in idolatry and in wickedness. Listen to Jeremiah 22, verses 29 and 30. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless. Which man? The current king, Jeconiah was his name. A man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David or ruling any more in Judah. He had been such a wicked king that God said through the prophet Jeremiah that none of his sons, and he had sons, but he said, none of your sons will follow you to the throne. Now this seemed to be a problem because in 2 Samuel 7, 16, this is what God said to David, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. So the Messiah is said to be the son of David. That's the fulfillment of this. But the Messiah was not the seed of David. He was not the seed of Joseph. He was the legal heir so what you see in this curse of Jeremiah is the necessity for a virgin birth. Because in order for David's line to continue, the son had to come through Joseph. But he didn't have to be Joseph's biological son. He could be his heir. We often think of Jesus as being the king of the Jews figuratively or symbolically, but that's not the case. He was the literal king of the Jews, and he was entitled to be the king. And in order for that to happen, Joseph would have had to die. We see the evidence of that at the cross when Jesus passes responsibility for the care of Mary to his friend John. And so we know then that Jesus was at that point the head of that family and because he was the heir of Joseph, he was the legal king of Israel, and they crucified him. That's fascinating, isn't it? So when they carved the sign in three languages, uh, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic, uh, they, they, they said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It's the truth. That's exactly right. Now, so God had said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. You will be the biological father. Now, God asked him for a sign. So let's take a look at it. He said, how shall I know that I inherit it? That's Genesis 15, 8. And God said, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now we read down through these and don't think about what we're reading here, but let me just say that what is being written is the clean animals that would be offered as sacrifices under the law of Moses. Now, in this case, it's a female cow, a heifer, that's never had a calf. Uh, or it could have been a young bullock. In this case, God said, take a heifer. The goat, the ram, and the two birds, the pigeon and the turtle dove, those were also offered as sacrifices under the law. The law is not enforced yet, but it, this is a foreshadowing of the law. Do you see what God does? Everything that he does is a little bit of a hint of what's to come. So he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Now, we read through this as if it just, which, 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 and he had that done in no time. It took him quite a while. He had to butcher a heifer, butcher a ram, cut it in two, right down the middle, split it in the middle, same thing with the goat. And fortunately, the birds were easy to handle, and he did not have to divide them. So he created a path. And the Bible says, when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham, or Abram, had to drive them away. Now, what is going on here? 
Well, this is a covenant ceremony. And you need to understand this. In Hebrew thought, you don't make covenants. You cut a covenant. There is no covenant without the cutting. And so when two parties entered into a solemn, a solemn blood covenant, they had to take the animals and cut them down the middle and create a path for each of the covenant partners to walk through. And while they would walk through, they would swear to certain promises that they would keep under penalty of death. And so that's why this was such a solemn ceremony. Now it's referred to in Jeremiah 34, 18, when they cut the calf in two and pass between the parts of it. And when you study the Old Testament, you see this all the time. So this is the cutting of the covenant, and it's what God did with Abraham. Now he had Abraham do the offering of the blood sacrifices for him. But God had something else in mind here that Abraham wouldn't see till much later. Now, when Abram laid out these carcasses, birds of prey naturally came down to eat. And uh, he had to continually fight to drive them away. They would have polluted the sacrifice. So this was in his power. Now this is highly symbolic. It pictures the dangers to you and me in the walking in God's covenant because our chief opposition will be in birds. Now the birds are not big enough, okay? They're not big enough and they're not powerful enough to come down and carry off half the body of a heifer or half the body of a ram or a goat. They're not big enough to do that. They are capable of polluting, but they're not capable of destroying it, taking it away. Not unless they are allowed to stay there and linger. So they are pictures of thoughts. And this is a great idea for you to wrap your head around. The devil will try to stop you from enjoying the fruits of the covenant God made with you through the thoughts that come to your mind. And it's so very important. You learn to resist thoughts. You can't stop the birds from flying over your head. And that's what Abraham saw right here. The birds were flying all around. They wanted to get down. You can keep them from getting into your covenant, and you can resist the devil. So Abram is doing what it is, his, is, is in his ability to do. So he drove these things away. Then God did something amazing. He put Abram to sleep. Now, I call it amazing for this reason. The whole idea is for the two parties to walk down through the path. For there to be a covenant, a covenant of blood, both God and Abram have to walk down through this path. But God stops it short before Abram can walk. And God puts him to sleep. Now he knows what's going on, but he's powerless to move. And it's God's way of saying that this covenant of salvation will not demand the same thing from you as what I will have to do. In other words, God is saying to him, you will not have to give up your son in the same way that I give up my son. That's what God is saying here. So we have unequal actions. So while he slept, another thing happened. And the Bible says in verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. This word means frightful. It means terror. And this was to be fulfilled 400 years later in Egypt. And it is also fulfilled in our times. Now, let's read this. A horror of great darkness fell upon him, and he said unto Abram, Know of a surety, that your seed, your biological offspring, and that's what the children of Israel were. They were Abraham's biological offspring through Sarah. They will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. They shall serve them. They shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they will come out with great substance. And you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not full. Now pay attention to this. 
It came to pass, verse 17, and the sun went down, or when it went down, it was dark, and behold, a smoking furnace. Now the Hebrew here is tanur, and it means the ovens or the tower of the ovens. Let me read it to you out of a couple of other places. Nehemiah 12, 38, going past the tanur or the tower of the ovens. Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. So these ovens or furnaces were seen here as a symbol. And then God moves on to say, there was a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. Now in Isaiah 62.1, it says this, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Now here's what's fascinating. God is saying that before the lamp of deliverance and salvation comes, there must be an oven, a burning oven. And it was so bad that a horror of darkness came upon Abram while he is seeing this. This, my friends, is a picture of the slavery in Egypt, but I also believe it's a shadow of the Holocaust. And what we see after the Holocaust, which ended in 1945, dreadful time, uh, started right around 1938-39, persecution of the Jews even before that, but the worst of it started in the late 30s, and it ended when Germany was completely conquered in 1945. And what we see is the impetus to give the people of Israel an opportunity for their own state, something that had been promised to them before but held back. Now it couldn't be kept back, and the Jewish people were given a homeland that happened in May of 1948. That's the lamp. That's the lamp of salvation, the lamp of deliverance, a lamp that burns, but the ovens came first. And that's the order that we see here in the book of Genesis chapter 15. So this is a fascinating shadow of Israel in the end times, the Jewish people. When does this come? It comes before the events that we read about in the last lesson. 12, 13, 14, we see the prosperity of Israel, the prosperity of Abraham. Genesis 13, we read about his three-phased wealth. He was wealthy in three different areas. And then we see an invasion that was launched by a group of nations led by what today would be the country of Iran. And they came at uh, Abram's nephew, Lot, and Abram responded and delivered him, but they were coming for spoil. And so we see now that this is the thing that happens later, but what happens before is there's a horrible time of suffering, but the establishment of the nation of Israel in the Middle East. Well, this is fascinating. And um, I, I hope you will read these things, mark these things, and uh, if, if necessary, listen to this over and again. And mark it in your Bible. Mark these scriptures and take a look at this. Don't take my word for it. When you see this, um, the, the, these words uh, that I give you in the Hebrew meanings, look it up in the Strong's Concordance yourself. You'll remember it much more if you do that. Well, we'll pick up here in just a little bit. See you then. Welcome back. Section 2 is where we're going to cover Genesis chapter 16. And I believe this has serious prophetic implications for the end times. And so let's go right ahead and read it. We'll turn back. I'm going to go from the, uh, new, from the New King James Version on this one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And why did we say that? Because God had not said anything to Abram about Sarai being able to bear a child. He could not make this happen through some desire of his own. 
All faith is based upon a promise from God. That's where faith comes from. If you do not have a promise from God and are not thoroughly convinced of it, if you don't have it, you can't have faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said unto Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And Abram had dwelt in Canaan uh, ten years when this happened. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. Now, I've heard different people say, this is uh, sexual harassment or uh, she's being sexually trafficked here. And it, this is pretty typical of people who are ignorant of ancient times and customs. Like when we began this last chapter uh, and read in Genesis 15, we read about the blood covenant. That's bloody gory to a lot of people. Uh, but in the day that this was done, it required something solemn, sobering that would get your attention. Just imagine that you live in a place where the population is very thin. It's nothing like what we have today, no density like we have today. No police force. There is no 911. There is no one to call. There is no constitution. There is no bill of rights. There is no guarantee that you will make it to the next week. The only law is the law of the sword, and in order to have protection, different groups of people had to come together. And in order for their agreements to take on the kind of serious nature that it required to survive in a world like that, they had to base it on something very serious, and they used the blood covenant to get that done. It was on the basis of the blood covenant that our salvation was brought about by the Lord. So he honors this idea of the blood covenant, and he puts his seal on it by bringing Christ to be your Savior, my Savior, by shedding his blood. So the blood covenant is the basis of our salvation. Now, it might not be pretty. It might not be something that you would want to do today, nor is it required of you today. However, it was required at one time. And what we see is people of today are terribly bad about going back into history and judging the people of a foregone era uh, by today's standards. We have come to accept more enlightened ideas, but we think that we're amazing because we came up with this. Do you not realize that all of these ideas are built layer upon layer? In other words, this whole notion that we are saved by faith and don't have to be saved by works. Do you realize that there was a day then when men preached that, their lives were in danger for saying that. When Martin Luther uttered those words, the just shall live by faith, when he's quoting the Old Testament and he's saying that salvation doesn't come through the works of the church, but salvation comes by faith in God and what he said, it put his life in danger. There were powerful German princes, leaders, who surrounded Luther and protected him because the state church, the Roman church, was determined to kill him for what he was preaching. And so we preach that today and think nothing of it. Your life is not taken today when you say the just shall live by faith. But boy, there was a time when it was a serious thing. There was a time when it was a very serious thing to print the Bible in a language that people could understand. In the Middle Ages, the scriptures were only in Latin. The common man did not speak Latin. He couldn't read the Bible in his own language. And so when Wycliffe and others began to translate the scriptures into the language of the people they preached to, their lives were in danger. So what we see is these ideas that we take and hold today that are dear and precious at one time had to be fought for.
And so we are very careful not to take them lightly. And we realize that we have come to believe certain things and are more enlightened today in some respects, in some respects probably not. But we're more enlightened today because of the layers of revelation that we have been privileged to hear, not just in the last 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. We have the benefit of centuries of wonderful thinking that helped bring us to this place. Now, this that Sarah did was in strict obedience to the Code of Hammurabi. And all through the book of Genesis, you can see the Code of Hammurabi at work. For instance, when Sarah died and Abraham needed to buy a cave to bury his wife, he weighed out silver and a certain weight, and he went through a transaction to buy from Ephron the Hittite, the cave of Machpelah, and the field that went with it. All of that is a part of the Code of Hammurabi. So all of those ancient peoples who lived in the Near East, they followed this code. They practiced the code. We know that Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, went into one of his father's other wives, not his own mother, but another wife of his father, and he slept with her. He was disinherited from the birthright. He was not entitled to the birthright. That was according to the code of Hammurabi. And that's why Jacob disowned him from in that. He didn't totally write him off, but he was no longer entitled to lead the family. He lost his moral authority and his legal authority as the holder of the birthright. Code of Hammurabi prescribed that. So you see it all through the book of Genesis. And so what happens here is the Code of Hammurabi. If a mistress, the lady of the house, couldn't have a baby, it was possible for a servant girl to step up and become a surrogate mother. Now, it's still done with her choice. They don't make her do it. And the fact that Hagar behaved in the way that she did tells me she was only too happy to serve in this role. Now listen to uh, Genesis 16, verse 4. When she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. I've gave, I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. In other words, Hagar looked down on Sarah. She thought herself above Sarah. because, And it was a crazy way of thinking in those days. It, it, you see it in Henry VIII. He was upset with his wives and had some of them killed because they couldn't give him a son and not realizing that he's the, the, the jerk that's determining whether or not uh, the children are sons or daughters because it has more to do with the seed of the man than it does the, the woman. And, and so uh, it's just crazy thinking. But uh, Sarah did what Hammurabi had written, and Hagar was only too happy to do it. She was not sex trafficked, and this was the way that they handled things in those days. All right, now let's read verses 7 through 10. Now Hagar had become unbearably arrogant, and for this reason Sarah put her out of the house. Now, she couldn't kill her. She couldn't have her executed. That was against the code of Hammurabi. The only thing that she was permitted to do with Hagar to discipline her was to banish her, to give her her freedom and say, you may go. And so that's what happened. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, and that's capitalized because this is most likely the pre-incarnate Christ. He said, return to your mistress, submit yourself under her hand, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall be not counted for multitude. And then, of course, uh, he goes into detail here about uh, how this would happen. Now, what we see here is that when Ishmael was born and through Sarah because of her attitude, we see the older son and his mother persecuting Sarah and the younger son, Isaac. And 
God permitted this to happen so that it could be a shadow. Uh, the New Testament calls it an allegory for us in the New Testament. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. Now let me set the stage. When he's writing to the churches of Galatia, he is trying to straighten out a mess that they've gotten into. They have succumbed to false teaching from people who were familiar with the law of Moses, who came from Judea, came into the Gentile churches, told them that their faith in Christ was not enough for them to be saved, that in order to be saved, they had to have faith in Christ, all right, but they also had to be circumcised, and they had to keep the law. Now, that's a lie, but here's what Paul said. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. In other words, it didn't take a miracle for Hagar to have a baby. All it took was natural uh, sexual relations, and voila, they had a son. Uh, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Now Isaac was born through a miracle. Which things are symbolic? King James says, therefore, an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Here's what Paul was saying. He's saying, today we are in persecution. We're suffering persecution from the children of the law. They represent Mount Sinai. And they persecuted Sarah and Isaac. We represent the free. We represent the seed that came by supernatural birth. After all, that's how we got into the family of God, by supernatural birth. And certainly Paul was a great example of someone who had been an enemy of Christ, but had a supernatural birth, and now he's in the family of God. He was being persecuted. We have been persecuted by people who fall into those Ten Commandments and insist that you have to do all of that and be circumcised to keep the law. And so Paul uses this Old Testament story as a model to refute the behavior of those first century Judaizers. Now, God permitted that whole thing to happen with Hagar so that Paul would be able to point to this and use this as a defining illustration against the persecution that came on the church that had emerged out of those who kept the law of Moses. All right? All right, now, let's keep reading. New King James Version, and we're looking at chapter, um, let's see, 16 and verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are a child, you shall bear a son, you'll call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be as a wild man. His hand will be against every man. Every man's hand will be against him, and he will dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And that's speaking about Ishmael. Now this is fascinating because this is exactly what happened in our day and is happening in our day. Now, he says that Ishmael will be a wild man he will dwell in the presence of all of his brothers, meaning that he doesn't have his own country, that he is living in everybody's country, and he lives among his brethren. And there are a group of people in the Middle East that number about 4 million today. They're Bedouins, and it's my belief that they are the offspring of Ishmael. That doesn't mean they don't have other bloodlines in, but they dwell in the presence of their brethren. And the other nations that they dwell around are the other Arab peoples. And this is an apothem uh, from the Bedouins. And, and this is what they say. It's a saying that they have. I am against my brother. My brother and I are against my cousin. My cousin and I are against the stranger. And uh, so this is their own saying. And uh, they, they are, are very aloof. And they always were. And so Ishmael became the father of these wandering desert tribes. And I think we can still see the evidence of it today. Now here's another thing. 
in Genesis chapter 16, we see that the Egyptian woman, who would today, Egyptians would be Arabs, but she had her child long before Sarah, which represents the Jewish nation, before she had her son. Uh, this is interesting to me. All of the nations in the Middle East, even though, even though the British, after they drove the Turks out of the Middle East, made a promise in 1917 to give the Jews a homeland there, they did not do it. But listen to what happened between 1917 and 1946. And remember, Israel became a nation in 1948. Iraq became a nation 23rd August 1921. Egypt received a homeland at the authority of the British government 28 February 1922. Saudi Arabia, another homeland, 23 September 1932. Lebanon, 2 November 1943. Syria, April 1946. Jordan, 25 May 1946. All of Israel's immediate neighbors, these are the six, and these are the six nations that attacked Israel when they declared independence in 1948. But they all received their homeland earlier, before. And so this is interesting to me because you see here a picture of the Jewish homeland coming after all of the other families had received their sons. And I think that that's what the story of Hagar and Sarah represents, that in the last days when Israel becomes a nation, it won't happen until all of the Arab nations have gotten their land. And that's exactly what we see. Well, this is the end of part two. We'll be back in just a little bit with part three. We're going to get into the rebirth of the modern state of Israel and where I believe it falls in the shadows that are given to us in the book of Genesis. And uh, I believe that the promise of Isaac is a symbol of the supernatural birth of the state of Israel, the rebirth of the state of Israel. And I want to read to you from the book of Romans chapter 4. And uh, as we get into this, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time that I see in Scripture seven different supernatural births spoken of, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now Abraham did not live under the law. Uh, We read in the book of Genesis chapter 18, when God came to visit him, he cooked him uh, a meal and served him butter and cheese along with uh, beef. And uh, so that's not kosher. And so uh, Abraham was not under the law of Moses, Uh, but he is the father of faith. So he is the father of both groups. He's the father of those who are of the seed of Israel who were born again, and those of us who were not of Israel, who are born again. He's the father of both. And I believe it's symbolized by the stars of the heaven and that of the sand of the sea. As it is written, God said, Romans 4, 17, I have made you a father of many nations. Now this is interesting. Up until the time that God visited Abraham when he was 99 years old, God always used future tense when talking to him about his family. He said, I will give you a son. I will uh, make you a father. Uh, he who comes forth out of your own bowels will be your heir. And then in the book of Genesis chapter 17, God said this, something he'd never said before. He said, I have made you a father meaning that it was officially done in the mind of God. God released words, and then at that moment in time, he expected it's done. And the scripture says, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now that's what faith is. Faith calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So God said to Abraham, I have made you a father. Didn't exist, but God said it, 
as if it had been done already. Who in Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, why did God wait all those years to tell Abraham, I have made you a father and I have made Sarah a mother? Why did God do that? God wanted it to be completely hopeless. In other words, he waited for them to reach a point in their physical bodies that there was no possibility of them having a son, no possibility of having a child. Sarah had been barren, but there probably were people in those days who were barren for a season, then all of a sudden were suddenly able to bear children. Uh, But what God wanted is he wanted someone to be born, Isaac to be born, miraculously to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And being not faith and weak, Abraham, Romans 4.19, did not consider his own body, didn't sit and think about the natural uh, effect of his own body, although dead, already dead reproductively since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, Sarah's womb been dead the whole time, but she's certainly not able to have babies now. And he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. You know why God did this? Because he wanted Abraham to be a model to people who get into hopeless situations. Some of you have been given a hopeless prognosis. Your doctor has told you it doesn't look good at all. Uh, You know, there are a lot of diseases that we face that have some hope of cure. But some of you get into situations that are completely hopeless. But that doesn't mean it's hopeless with God. God gave us Abraham as a basis to look to, to have faith in completely hopeless situations. So being strengthened in faith, he gave glory to God. So how do you strengthen your faith when you're waiting for something to be manifested? You give glory to God. You begin to praise God for it as if it's already happened. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now I would ask you this question, who convinced Abraham fully? Was it God? Does God convince people fully? Now, God starts the convincing. There's no doubt about that. God always has to start it. But then it's up to us to convince ourselves. You have to convince yourself. The Bible says Abraham was fully persuaded in the King James. Who persuaded Abraham that the promise of God was true? Abraham did. It started with God, but... A lot of people start with God and and do not remain fully persuaded, but they don't persuade themselves. Abraham kept on persuading himself. You know how he did it? He did it with his mouth every day. He called himself Abraham, and he called his wife Sarah as opposed to Sarai. That's a funny thing. To change your name after you've lived on this earth with one name for 99 years, and you suddenly change it. And you got to explain yourself. Why'd you change your name? And everybody knows that it's not just a name change. The whole meaning of the name is something, father of many nations, uh, mother of princes. And that's what they called themselves. And people knew that they took on these new names. And they were making a statement when they did it. And the scripture says, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed in this. This is how God brought about this amazing family. He did this supernatural birth. And so let's talk about these supernatural births, okay? The first one is the birth of Isaac, founding the nation of Israel. The second is the supernatural birth of Christ. He was born of a virgin. So that this supernatural birth theme carries through God's people. The third supernatural birth is Jesus' supernatural resurrection from the dead. He is called the firstborn from the dead. In other words, other people had been raised from the dead temporarily. Uh, but they did not receive glorified bodies. Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, Christ, on the other hand, did receive a glorified body, brand new body. So he is born from the dead. That's the third supernatural birth. There is on the day of Pentecost, a special birth, the birth of the church. And you have all of these people that uh, are, are born again on the day of Pentecost and filled with the Holy Spirit. There is another supernatural birth, and it happened to me when I was 17 years old. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Jesus said, you must be born again. I was born again. You were born again. That's a supernatural birth. We are number five. Then... There is the rebirth of the state of Israel. It is a supernatural miracle. A lot of people don't believe in it. 
But listen to me, for a nation to be scattered in the way that they were, to be driven out of their country for more than 500 years, and they come back almost 2,000 years later, reconstitute their language. That's amazing. Ancient Hebrew has been resurrected and is being spoken in the land. Isaiah said that would happen. And it did. It has. And so we see another amazing supernatural birth. It happened on May the 14th, 1948. And then there will be new heavens and a new earth. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven supernatural births associated with God's kingdom. And so uh, it's not surprising then that God would begin this nation supernaturally and restore it supernaturally. Now, when God made this promise to Abraham, I have made you a father, he was 99 years old. E.W. Bullinger writes this about the number nine. It is the last of the digits and thus marks the end. It is the significant or it is significant of the conclusion of the matter. The sum of the Hebrew alphabet's 22 letters is 4,995. Lots of nines in there. Or five times 999. The sum of the Greek alphabet is 3,999. The word amen in Greek, or the verily that Jesus used a lot, verily, verily, I say to you, has a numerical value of 99. And where do you put that? At the beginning? No, you put it at the end. So the end is 99. So why is that significant? Abraham was 99 years old, and God waited till the end. Everybody thinks it's over. The credits are about to roll. It's all done. No hope. And then all of a sudden, God gives him a new start, makes him a father, gives him a son. So God came to Abraham to do this great work when it was all over. Listen to what he said now to Sarah, Genesis 17, 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham tries to talk God out of it. And he said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac, which means in Hebrew, laughter. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Amazing prophecies here. Uh, God does this thing at the very end and, and the first time ever he has told Abraham, Sarah's the mother. That's the first time then that they could believe it. Now, this is what I love. Look at this. <clears throat> God has said, you don't call her Sarai anymore. So Abraham is still wrestling with this idea. She's going to have a baby. But listen to how he does it. Verse 17, then Abraham fell, Abraham fell on his face and said, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He didn't say Sarai. He said Sarah. So he went ahead and switched over instantly. He did not argue with God. He instantly switched over and called her Sarah. And so he is ready to go. And then the more he spoke it, the more he gave God glory over the next year, uh, the stronger his faith got, and they became parents. And it was a miraculous, miraculous thing. Now, this is my opinion and uh, my great belief, and it is that this is a picture of the rebirth of the state of Israel. Because the rebirth of the state of Israel came after a long, long wait. It looked like it would never happen. In the 1800s, in the middle part of the century, uh, numbers of Jews began to go back to the land, and they bought land from the Turks at outrageous and exorbitant prices, and they began to farm. And that's the first prophecy 
concerning the restoration of modern Israel. It is the agriculture movement. And it happens and it's given in Ezekiel chapter 36. Then there is a great shaking with a whole lot of noise where there's a valley full of dry bones. They are totally hopeless. I believe this is the Holocaust. It's a picture of the Holocaust and of the shaking of World War II. And we see this valley of bones is given life by the Spirit of God. They come together and form uh, the reconstituted skeletons, although they are not yet covered in flesh and muscle. But then as he prophesies, Ezekiel does, they are covered with muscles, then flesh. And then finally, the last phase is they are born alive spiritually. Last thing that happens is the breath of God enters into them. That is yet to be fulfilled in full. It's happening somewhat, but not in full yet. But there is that restoration. Now, Britain went to war against Germany and against the Ottoman Turkish Empire in World War I. And we also were involved in that war. But Britain was the nation that had the greatest influence. And they, they were the number one world power of the day. They uh, went into uh, uh, that war uh, with a great navy, with great power that reached around the globe. Uh, but, but, you know, 40 some odd years later, it was over. Uh, they lost a good portion of their empire. And I believe it is because of a terrible mistake they made. They took the land and they told the Jewish people out of gratitude for the help of a particular Jew who found a way to invent uh, explosives, nitroglycerin, from chestnuts and, uh, and, and things that could be found in Britain when the U-boats were sinking all of the ships that were coming uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this, this chemist was able to save the war effort. And out of gratitude to him, they said, what would you ask of us? And he said, I want a homeland for my people. Well, they'd just taken the, the whole of the Middle East. And so they promised to set aside what is today the nation of Israel and what we sometimes call the West Bank and the whole country of Jordan. All of that was considered to be one nation, and they promised in 1917 to give it to Israel. They didn't do it. But instead, they began to give nations and give lands to all of the different peoples around. All the different Arab countries got their land. Now, did they not do this because the land of Palestine, as it was then called, uh, it, was it because it was full of Arabs? Listen to what Mark Twain said when he went through in 1867. He said, It was all desolate, unpeopled, mild of desolate country, all its land a burning waste. Now, there were some cities, but certainly not as big as they are today. Nothing like what we see today, and the country itself was empty. Uh, it is a scorching, arid, repulsive solitude. Such roasting heat, such oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. Nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death. All its land is unsown. One may ride ten miles hereabouts and not see ten human beings. There's not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for thirty miles in either direction, nor does it bear. The valleys are unsightly deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation, a desert paved with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun. No grass grows in it. And this is what the Jewish farmers from Russia and other places in Europe came to find when they went back into the land. They came in as strangers. They were, did not have their own country, but they began to farm it. They drained the swamps, and God blessed the land, and the land began to bear. Today it's a marvel of modern agriculture, but it was against all odds, and they turned the desert into an oasis. Now I want to read Isaiah 66 to you. And we'll begin with verse 5, which says, Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word, your brothers hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake. They said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Now think about that for a minute. Before she was ever in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child 
Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory." So Isaiah says that this nation will be brought about in one day. And that did happen against all odds. On May the 14th, 1948, immediately the nation of Israel was hit upon by the armies of their six Arab neighbors. Iraq starts with an I. <clears throat> um, Saudi Arabia, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting it right. Syria would be the next one, starts with an S. The Royal Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, that's an R. Saudi Arabia was called Arabia Saudia, that's an A. Egypt, Lebanon, they all spelled together I-S-R-A-E-L. And they all hit Israel at once, and Israel won their independence. And instead of getting weaker, they got stronger. Interesting to me that from the time that God told Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land to the time that Isaac was born and another event took place. And a lot of people look right over this, but it's a real marker, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Uh, when Isaac was weaned, when he was about five years old, Ishmael was mocking him, and Sarah went to Abraham and said, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman will not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And Abraham was still entertaining that idea. And the Lord said, in all that your wife has said to you, listen to her. She's right. And so Abraham did send away Hagar and Ishmael. And this is what God had said to Abraham. This is Genesis 21, 12. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That was about 30 years from when God told Abraham to go into the land, the part that you read in Genesis chapter 12, about a 30-year gap. So now, the Scripture says that the children of Israel went out of Egypt 430 years to the day from a previous event. What would that have been? It was 430 years from the day that Abraham came out of Haran and went into the land of promise. 430 to the time of the Exodus. Now, there are other places that says that the children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years. So that would mean another clock started ticking 30 years after Abraham came into the land. What clock would that be? What would the marker be? The marker would be when God said, In Isaac your seed is called. So there was a 25-year period between the time that God said to Abraham, I give you and your seed this land forever in Genesis 12. And then there was a five-year period before God said, Isaac is your seed. That's 30 years. So you will see in Scripture two different lengths of time given for the sojourn of the Jewish people. There was the 430-year period and the 400-year period. And the only way to mark the 400 years is to start counting at the weaning of Isaac when God said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. They both end up at the same time. One of them counts from 430, one of them counts from 400, but they both wind up at the exodus of Egypt. So really, in effect, the children of Israel were only in Egypt's bondage for about 215 years. They were there for four generations. The sojourning is what took the 430 years, which is the sojourning of Isaac, uh, uh, Abraham, Jacob, all three of them, along with those 12 tribes that went down into Egypt. And then once they got there, 
it was another 215 years. So it's about 215 from the time Abraham came to the time they went to Egypt, then in 215 when they got out. So that's the 430. So anyway, I don't want to confuse you with that, but what I want you to see is that God marked that time that Isaac's seed was called. And so this, I believe, is a picture of the rebirth of Israel from the time that the Balfour Declaration was given in November of 1917 to the rebirth of the state of Israel in May of 1948 is a little over 30 years. It's a very similar time, and I, I don't think that's accidental. So it's a picture of the rebirth of the state of Israel, another supernatural birth. So we see the thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which shall be is the thing that has been, and there is no new thing under the sun. So this sequence of Genesis chapter 15, 16, and 17 is a picture of the Holocaust, the rebirth of Israel, the birth of that state, and all of the struggles and the conflicts with their Arab neighbors. It's all the high time I have for this particular episode, but we're not done. I'll see you next time. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below or going to myfaithroots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today. 